We make sense of our lives through stories. Regardless of our different backgrounds and perspectives, stories have the power to bind us. Right. I mean, and that just, that's so true. And it is, I find it, I mean, this is what I was talking about maybe like two or three months ago. It's like, what's the Joseph Campbell myth about climate change that you can tell as a compelling story, right? That people are involved in. Oh, Steve Sherlock here for Franklin Matters, Franklin Public Radio, anywhere on the internet at WFPR.FM and in the local Franklin Mass area radio dial, FM dial 102.9. Here for another Making Sense of Climate session with my guide and neighbor, Ted McIntyre. Ted, happy Thursday to you. Oh, it's a great Thursday, Steve, and it's great to be with you to talk about one of the most interesting and important topics ever, ever, ever. So... Ever, ever, ever exponential. <laughs> um, and yeah, that's why we chose the title is this making sense of climate because climate um, can be confusing, can be um, there's a lot of misinformation, a lot of disinformation. Um, but we're trying to sort through that to make sense of it because there are things that we need to do. Um, and time seems to be running out. We don't want to be too alarmist, but you know, tis what it is, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So a roundabout way to start today, um, sometime last year, and I forget exactly when it was, uh, I agreed with the, with the wife to watch some TV. We needed a break from everything else that was going on during COVID. Who, who else needed a break? So we went to Netflix. We were cruising. We found a documentary um, that sounded, okay, this sounds good. Um, we didn't know it didn't have a happy ending, so no spoiler alert probably there, but uh, oops, it's too late. Um, but Sergio was a well-told, excellent story of a civil servant working and doing good things through places around the world, you know, East Timor and other places that was like, I hadn't really, I mean, you're aware of them, you see them on the map, it's like, but what's going on? And He's doing work and working his way up through the UN and the UN saying, hey, go solve this problem. Go solve this problem. It was a well-told story. And then in the bylines, it says, well, it was written well, based upon a book that was written by Samantha Power. So I trialed that, put that in the side. And then earlier this year, I think it was, she wrote her memoir and it became published. So The Education of an Idealist, a memoir by Samantha Power. So I said, oh, I know that name. That was Sergio. So I go through the reading and I'm thinking, okay, it's a memoir. It's an education of idealists. We have ideals. <laughs> what does she do? So the long story short, uh, she was emigrated to the US from Ireland, has a tremendous story. She ends up as the UN ambassador appointed by Obama. She was the uh, uh, ambassador who handed over the keys to the kingdom to Nikki uh, Healy when uh, she came in with the Trump administration. Really? She is still now active. She's part of the U.S. aid. She leads that effort. Um, but in the course of reading her book, um, and because I was doing it on Kindle, those who are familiar with Kindle, you can do highlights and take notes. So I was taking some key pieces along the way. 
And there were some items in there that just, you know, seemed germane just in terms of the storytelling that we're trying to do, right? Um, mm -hmm. We make sense of our lives through stories. Regardless of our different backgrounds and perspectives, stories have the power to bind us. That's a powerful thought. And I've heard it in different ways, but then catching it this way, it was like, ooh, this is going to be a good book. <laughs> Let's continue <laughs> reading. So I did, of course. Then, as I said, I just, I finished it. But towards the end of it, um, it started getting into some of it. She had the master plan. Clearly, this is her memoir, so she knows her life. This is, so this is Samantha Power is a high-end politician, Obama administration. People have probably seen her on TV, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. She's She's been around, a very smart uh, uh, person, and this is the book you're reading, right? This is the book that I finished. She is heavily involved in human rights, thereby with the UN, um, in her role as an ambassador. She did one unique thing so that in advance of uh, women's rights, there were, and there are still today, she had posted 20 individuals who in their countries, and I'm not sure if it was 20 countries or some that, but it was 20 individuals who had been justly unjustly jailed for trying to advocate for rights for the people in their country. In the course of you know, like the first three or four months, you know, like five or six of them ended up getting freed. By the time she'd finished publishing the book, I think 16 of the 20 were freed, something like that. So she made progress, but that was her mark mm -hmm. was, and also uh, clearly for diversity and respect for the individual, um, tremendous story. So I do highly recommend the book, but in the course of it, as we get to, there's a couple of quotes in there where the islands that formed Kiribati. So I haven't gone back to Google to find out where Kiribati is on a map, <laughs> but they get a combined population of 112,000 people. And amongst them, the highest elevation is just six feet. So where, do, where does this play? Well, in some forecasts, you know, there's supposed to be about a foot rise in the ocean. One foot out of those six, what's that going to do to that island? <laughs> Right. That's going to okay. change. And that, that's just one island of 112,000 people. And there are thousands of islands across the. So I, I, I think Kiribati is like sort of north of Australia, uh, west of Singapore, west of the Philippines. Right. In mm, that part yeah. of the world. Okay. Right. Yep. Lots and lots and lots of islands, all, as you say, very small, distributed and quite close to the sea level. And those. They're nation states now in the, in the wake of yeah. World War II, the lots of countries with flags and histories and whatnot. And yeah, some of them are going to disappear, just be gone, right? Just right. Like, no longer exist. They're no. underwater. No. Uh, and of course, the legal implications, like if a country is a member of the United Nations, which I'm sure Kiribati is, and all of a sudden their water, their land is under underwater, does that mean they don't exist anymore? Or are they still a country? Right. That's, and that's do they still have a seat at the UN? Right? <laughs> and and if the people from Kiribati, I mean, I believe this is happening somewhere, this other islands, they're saying making a deal, say, with Australia, say, we're all going to come live in Australia. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. The do they become Australian? 
Are they? Or do they carve out some piece of the outback? And I mean, it, you know, it, so it, it's the, the given the the likelihood of sea level rise. If anyone, I mean, there are people have all kinds of interests, right? But the sort of geopolitical politics, you know, legal aspects of the whole thing are fascinating, right? I mean, there's a niche there for people who, you know, want to spend their life trying to figure out what happens when your country is underwater. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And we're fortunate. Certainly, we, when we've talked before, we're very grateful for what we have here in the U.S. We've got a whole lot of technology working for us, with us, um, in some cases against us. That's a separate story, separate podcast. But uh, in one of our conversations with the ambassador from Tuvalu, he was talking about, you know, when a, when a hurricane hits the U.S., you get people warned and they have a chance to move to higher ground. When we get warned, there's nothing we can do. We don't have higher ground. The only place to go is up a coconut tree. And of course, she says in her paraphrase, in her simplistic mind, I mean, she's she's an ambassador for U.S. talking now to this other ambassador. How does an elderly person get up a tree? Exactly, he says. <laughs> How do you do that? Right. So oh, yeah, yeah. it's it's situations like that. They're just uh, how do you deal with the diversity of a population and the challenges that they're facing. I mean, it, it, what that story reminds me, I was, I, you know, uh, I, I was fortunate enough to go to the Caribbean a few, but in the before times. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was in this little art studio with the artist and we, for, for, I can't imagine how we ended up talking about hurricanes because it was me. But I mean, he, he was saying, look, and he was familiar with the U.S. He said, we're out here in the Caribbean. When a hurricane comes, we just have to hunker down and go through it. Right. We can't jump on I-95 and drive and north or drive away. Right? Right. You're yeah. stuck. Right. And I think the, the same thing with uh, Puerto Rico. Right. I mean, they are in the line of fire, yes. but they're also a fantastic opportunity to develop distributed energy generation, right? I mean, if Puerto Rico was completely solar and wind turbine based, you know, you wouldn't have to run wires everywhere, all of these small islands. And the reason I mention it is not because wouldn't it be cool if they all did that? It's like the United States could learn the lessons of how yes. to deploy stuff by foreign aid that helped all these guys mm -hmm. figure out how to survive hurricanes, right? right. Well, and even just from a local Franklin perspective, people will recall that the north side of town was having problems with wind and wires getting dropped because trees would fall. So National Grid went through, did a tree cleanup. They've cleaned up a lot of it. They also improved their infrastructure, but we still have wires. So to your point, yeah, let's take care of the wires, make them more distributed, make them more robust put them in, you know, underground potential or utilize, you know, the wind power and um, other well, solar I mean, power, et cetera. So we're not dependent upon one pipe to give us power. I mean, in in Puerto Rico, I guess I, I don't don't want to pretend I have the exact story, but my understanding is there's one power plant. Yes. Right? And of course, it's coal or dirty. Right. But what they mm -hmm. have to do then is is put the transmission lines over the mountains in the middle of the island which yeah. of course nothing's going to happen to them in a hurricane right and run it down the other side instead of having locally generated energy with his solar panels at each village right 
blah blah mm-hmm. blah blah blah. I mean, it's or the uh, geothermal network that we've talked about. Maybe yeah, that's absolutely. an option in one of those places too. So, yeah. um, yeah, I mean, it's. But you're right. I mean, the whole question of the. I mean, what you what you're tiptoeing up to is the whole question of the morality and justice of us driving our Ford F-150s and the people in Tuvalu having to climb coconut trees, right? right. Who's in, and, and not to go too political on it, but I mean, you hear, you hear talk about colonialism, right? The, mm. the British empire, I mean, in many ways, the United States and the advanced countries are colonializing in quotation marks, the atmosphere by taking this natural clean resource and dumping all of our junk into it and right. letting someone else. So, I mean, these, these kind of words sound esoteric and kind of, uh, I don't know, you, you talk about colonial heritage and people's eyes glaze over, but I mean, mm-hmm. it's a very realistic way that the powerful are just taking advantage of what's out there and the heck with everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where I think to the extent that we're trying albeit in our way, <laughs> to make sense of climate. And hopefully the podcast will gather some readership, followers, people will mm-hmm. spread the word. Because as I think we talked and shared in a prior piece, and we can certainly reinclude the link, the Globe had a survey recently that said people aren't concerned about climate. Um, and yet, as this example, I'm just reading a book about a UN ambassador <laughs> and climate gets slapped in the face. You can't avoid it. Because yeah. those are, if you follow through on any number of points, as we've done over the, this is our 11th time, it comes back. You know, the chickens come home to roost. <laughs> and are they going to have a home at some point? Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it's, 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 again, almost trite to say it. But, I mean, the economy exists inside of a working physical environment. Right. right. If you don't have the quote unquote natural capital that gives you clean air, clean water and, you know, reasonable temperatures, your economy is gone. I mean, that, the economy is sort of a human construct. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the planet is the thing that that contains all of that other stuff. Point being that almost anything you can think about economically or in human culture eventually rewinds back to these fundamentals that climate is touching. Right. right. Your health, your food. I mean, and. So people may think that people may think that climate is some sort of a siloed issue, you know, with the, the concern of of woolly headed liberals who mm-hmm. you know think about uh, polar bears and stuff. But sure. once you start to see the connections, you realize that climate you almost cannot put it in its own category and say, what do you think about climate? You have to say, what do you think about climate's impact on the price of gas? What do you think about climate's impact on your health? Right. Mm -hmm. And then you start to say, Oh yeah, I'm worried. I mean, this is a driver for a lot of stuff. Well, I think food is a good touch point there because that also ties in with some of the recent stories and potentially more stories coming as people start recognizing that. But even the situation in Ukraine is disrupting the food supply because of the grain shipments. Now, uh, multiple companies, certainly, and it's kind of like the Pac-Man, blah, 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 blah. so there's, now there's a concentration of companies who own aspects of the food supply. And because they've, because of the economics of that situation, which people can understand, okay, it's more efficient. Than, but now you've got a, almost a single point of failure, mm-hmm. where a significant piece of grain comes out of one country and now is no longer going to come out of the country until some things change. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and you can rewind that back. I mean, the whole, I mean, Russian 
from the time of Catherine the Great, always wants to be a great power, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, but what's fueling Putin's ability right now is his sale of petrochemicals of natural right. gas. So, there, I mean, you, you and, and of course that's what's causing climate change. So there's this not only the connection of to the decrease in food production because of climate change, but also these other. Well, if I could just go off into left field, I mean, I saw a an um, an article that talked about, and it sounds hyperbolic, but in the most recent IPCC Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the report talked about you know the the, the possibility of total societal collapse, mm -hmm. right? Which just like at the face of it, you say, well, okay, that that's just too far out there. What they're saying is that there is an interaction of natural could, uh, bad things that come from climate change and human-driven systems that can be affected. And I think here's an example. It's like, on the one hand, as the earth warms, you're going to see less and less food production. And then on the other side, you've got Putin, you know, human-caused crisis, him invading Ukraine and, and mining the wheat fields, literally, right? right? Those two things combine, and then, okay, you, you know, things are bad. Mm-hmm. And while many of us may have, you know, a garden, is the garden plot truly going to survive, serve us for food for whatever our family household is? And, you and know, I, it, it's certainly meant to augment. It's not meant to, to be survivable. But I think that the World War II notion of a victory garden. Yes. And to all those those uh, folks born after me, I mean, the Victory Garden was a thing you were encouraged to plant during World War II Correct. to have your own vegetables to sort of take take the strain off the what was being sent to the GIs. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. Completely reasonable. And, and I, the whole question of the localization of the food chain is a climate issue. Right here in Franklin, we have yeah. the wonderful farmers market, which I encourage everyone to go. I mean, that's local stuff grown locally. You pay for it locally. The money stays here. The capacity to produce the food stays here. Right, right? and those are good things. And, yep. and as you see, um, again, I don't, I have not read the article, but David Wallace Wells, who wrote a book called uh, "The Uninhabitable Earth," right, blah 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 blah. He's got another report out about the threat to food from lots of issues over the next 50 years. Right? Mm -hmm. It's in the New York, New York magazine, I think. Right. Um, but I mean, it's all it, it, the, the, the way we get our food and the economics of it are climate issues. And so it's back, I guess, just to rewind back to your thing about how people, when they're asked, stopped on the street and asked a survey, do you care about, you know, price of gas or climate change or your health care or are you going to get laid off? And climate change always goes to the bottom of the list. That's, I don't think, representative of the real situation if people begin to put together the implications of climate on all these other things. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, if anything, and I recall the article, and I think the structure of the questions, Chloe, was how it came up to that. Um, what you ask or don't ask, <laughs> or how you ask what you ask, truly is key. And I think that if they had stopped to realize that, oh, by the way, yeah, this, 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 and look at the dominoes, you know, as we've been coming to, climate's at the root of a number of these things. Um, and if you don't recognize that, yeah, you could go that way. But how much of an importance is that when you consider the grand scheme of things? So, well, so the, 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 you touch on the whole question of polling, 
right? Because people think a poll is, you know, God spoke and gave mm. us a poll, right? There's so many Sampleization, statistics, and theories. Right, right. The, the structure of the question matters. It's like I, I always take issue with the, you know, is the United States on the right course or the wrong course, right? And I guess I have to, I kind of think it's on the wrong course or we're like, mm -hmm. we're not, to, right? But that doesn't mean I want Trump, the, the, the former guy back, right? right? And so the question is so yeah. ambiguous as to be meaningless, right? Yeah. It's not, um, there you go. Yeah. Uh, I remember uh, a challenging question that somebody had been asked and they were making fun of it, but it's one of the, the phrasing of the question, you know, when, when did you stop beating your wife? <laughs> that's right, that's right, how how that's do you right. answer that question? <laughs> <laughs> yep. I never started, yep. right? That's right. <laughs> but that's not, that's not generally one of those answers that are provided. So, well, you know, I mean, I, I think there's, there's a whole thing about, uh, what do they call it? Category errors. Mm -hmm. it's, like, it's like, if you go to the North Pole, which direction is North? Right. It's just, it's not a right. question, right? It's not something you can, uh, you can answer. Yeah, there's, it's an unanswerable question in those cases. Yeah, that's where content in context makes a big difference. Absolutely. That's right. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. While we're on questions, just, just for some humor is to, to join with the laugh. I remember the favorite word problem came out of a Tom Robbins book. If a hen and a half could lay an egg and a half in a day and a half, how long would it take a monkey with a wooden leg to kick all the seeds out of a dill pickle? There you go. There and you if go. anybody's ever had word problems and problems with word problems, that just right. is like, how do you figure that out? But it's the nature of the word problem. And there's there's not enough data to compute it, bottom line. But it's it's a great laugh. <laughs> And it made its point because I've memorized it since for how many years? Yeah, I can yeah, that that, it's funny how things stay like with you, right? Right? Didn't he write uh, "Even Cowgirls Get the Blues"? He that, did. Uh, yes. That was him. Yes, yes, that was him. He he is quite the humorous writer. And as I think as recently as 2020 during the pandemic, I was rereading some of his books. Oh, really? "Cowgirl Gets the Blues" was one of the ones that I did reread. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, good, good stuff. So we've talked books, but we're also talking news <laughs> and current events, and they're all tied together. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The, I mean, the, the, the big question of the day continues to be, speaking of books, right, the question is how to tell the story, how to relate mm. the ongoing um, drama around will Massachusetts achieve its its climate goals, its 2030 climate goals. And you and I have spent a lot of time, people who have listened to more than one of these podcasts know that, you know, we're talking about the roadmap, right? It's all laid out. Question, yeah. Are we getting there? What are the problems with it? That's the kind of, a, a, you know, the context and the, the, the place you want to begin. And the current state of affairs, top level state of affairs is that right now, we're sort of in a gestation period, I guess you could say. Yeah. Um, uh, the just to remind everybody, in March, the House of Representatives of the state of Massachusetts passed a climate uh, class passed a climate bill that mostly did a good thing of encouraging the wind industry. Right, called for. I forget the numbers, but, you know, a whole lot more wind turbines off Massachusetts and more job training and, mm -hmm. you know, helping the businesses in 
on on the shores like New Bedford and Salem get you know blah 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 all kinds of good stuff. Yeah. Um, and that's based upon some of the changes we had talked of with the pipeline bringing turb water turbine powered electricity down through Maine, which pay, passed or excuse me failed a, a ballot question last year. It's in court. Who knows where it's going to do? So the House, to their credit, said, "Hey." We've got this wind place offshore. Let's speed up and do stuff here so we at least we can do that. Which is a good thing. So there's a bill that passes the House. About a month later, the Massachusetts Senate, right? Remember, we are a bicameral constitution. Mm -hmm. So there's a House and the Senate. The Senate passes a different climate bill. The Senate climate bill mostly wanted to talk about electric vehicles, right? And and how are we going to sell more EVs? And so all this, so so it's an interesting, uh, so the, the Senate bill was talking about transportation and it highlights the following simple rule of thumb that here in Massachusetts, if we want to, re there are three big sources of greenhouse gas emissions for us, right? We make a lot of greenhouse gas gases by burning natural gas to make electricity, to right. generate electricity, the generation issue. Um, there are a lot of carbon dioxide emissions that come from driving our cars around, right? Burning the gasoline. So there's, there's emissions from the transport sector. So there's generation mm -hmm. and transport. And finally, there's a lot of carbon dioxide that comes out of buildings from that where we use natural gas to heat, basically heat the, gas, the water and keep our buildings warm. So you end up with Simply put, the problem in Massachusetts is generation, transport, um, and buildings. Right? Mm -hmm. For example, it's not specifically, it's not agricultural waste, right? It's not like we have no. big farm fields doing, right? So we have a very specific kind of thing. And for us, the transportation and the building are very big factors. So those are like, just like, a, you know, count on one hand, count on three fingers, three big topics, right? The House bill talks about generation of electricity, the generation issue, reducing carbon dioxide emissions there. That's great. Senate talked about reducing emissions from transportation by trying to get electric vehicles out. You can nitpick about the Senate bill, right? Because the idea that everyone deserves an EV is one that reasonable people can discuss. Okay. But they're, they're pushing the transport part. The Senate bill did not include a lot of money for the MBTA or regional transport, right? So again, you can right. critique it, but they're, they're my God, they're doing something, but that's a good thing, right? right? Yeah. And again, as you remember from, uh, from uh, TV shows in the eighties that you showed your child, uh, it's, uh, you know, if the house passes a bill and the Senate passes a bill, they have to be what's called reconciled. Mm -hmm. So, in other words, so both they all get together and say, we're going to send five of our guys, team from our side, a team from your side. Yeah, three and three go, for a team of six. Yep. Team, three and three for a team of six. You're, they're, going to, they're going to go down into the basement of the state house and not come out until they have resolved uh, the, uh, the difference in language between the two bills. Mm -hmm. right? But in this case, you get fairly substantial philosophical differences between the two bills, right? Assuming there's a limitation on money, if right. you spend it on wind turbines, you can't spend it on EVs. Right? How are yeah. you going to cut the baby in half there? That process is happening now. Yes. Right? And that's 
that's the news is that we are waiting. I said gestation before. We're waiting for this reconciliation, I think is, is that the word? Reconciliation. reconciliation yeah. Yep. The reconciliation yep. committee. Conference committee. committee. Conference yeah. committee coming back with saying, okay, here's a single bill that incorporates the best of the Senate version and the House version. Yep. And that is it's some level of call to action. Mm-hmm. If you care about these issues, dear listener, if you're listening and you care about it, now is the time to call your state rep and state senator and tell them you want a strong bill that includes all of this stuff. Right. I mean, if I, we should, I think they could do the whole thing in 20 minutes by t- put the two bills together and say, yeah, okay, this is going right. to do the whole thing. Yeah. Right? As opposed to because there was released so one conference committee reported this week on the voting side, which is not necessarily I mean, it's germane from a justice perspective, but the one key piece, they put the House and Senate bill together and left same day registration out. Right. Whether that's that the, gets resolved or not, that's another story. But that's a result of a conference committee. And we're just waiting for this other one to come back and see what the results are going to be. Right. And and I think from the uh, from my reading, the climate community. Right, the people uh, who care about climate action have a couple of different kinds of statements about what what they hope comes out of this resol- this uh, conciliation reconciliation committee. Okay, one of the things that they hope is carried forward is a little piece of the Senate bill. The Senate bill had called for the state of Massachusetts to intervene, and I'm not exactly sure how, but somehow take control of the DPU's process for something called the future of gas. Right? Oh, yes. Right. Yeah, Again, this is, yeah. this has been a lot of topics. I mean, it's, it's, I don't want to talk about it anymore, but I mean, the people are going to, right. It, 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 it's, it's this idea that the gas industry has got to fix in with the DPU, the department of public utilities to somehow codify the use of hydrogen and what's called renewable natural gas, which is a misnomer that we don't even have to get into. But basically, for the next 50 years, they want to use state monies to rebuild pipelines and keep the fossil fuel business going as it is, right? Mm-hmm. And this is, to my mind, is my in my humble opinion, this is an example of a captured agency, the Department of Public Utilities, serving the utility interest and not the public interest. So we hope that the state mm-hmm. takes that, that the reconciliation committee that's trying to reconcile these two bills takes the chunk from the Senate bill that says we are not going to accept this sweetheart deal that's being given out by DPU and somehow intervene there and fix that so it doesn't happen. Yeah, and I think that ties to, and I think we talked about it, maybe we didn't. Maybe that was one of those things that I think the actual notification from FERC came out on the Friday before Memorial Day weekend, and they agreed with the postponement of that decision for two years, which is, to your point and our point, no, we can't wait two years to incorporate that stuff in. Yeah, I mean, just just to rewind, the, the the there's a decision about a geeky thing called the MOPR, the MOPR. You'll hear it, right? Where they basically are freezing freezing out renewables from being able to get on the electric grid for another two years because it's all, too cheap. Yeah, because Excuse it's too me. cheap, <laughs> and it's all at the behest of the fossil fuel producers. And that that whole thing is on its own 
mind-numbing track. I don't think there's even anything in this in this reconciliation bill that would address the MOPR rule, right? Right. It, although, and and I mean that's my God, you can get me going for hours on that because yeah. it's such an outrage. But the the DPU with the future of gas, we'd like to pull in. There are, I think you and I talked recently with a couple of uh, of of activists talking about section 65 yes which would allow this is section 65 of the senate bill that would give permission to certain towns to be very if they choose to to go and be really aggressive in terms of getting rid of gas in their new buildings Mm -hmm. and that would be a good thing to include right and this so this is now we said before there's the generation electrical generation which is the wind turbine stuff there's trans- transport, which is the EV stuff, plus other things. What we need to get in this bill somehow is ways to address the building sector, the, the, the carbon dioxide that comes out of buildings, and how do you mm-hmm. manage that? That's where these things like the, the future of gas, right, intervening with the DPU so they can't give away the future, uh, including this uh, Section 65. And there's one other thing, one other bill that I'm familiar with, that has it's called the zero carbon renovation fund, which basically does the following thing. It says that the Biden administration is sending out this, um, what do you call it, infrastructure money, right? So there's 250 million dollars available to the state to spend various ways. One proposal of a way to spend that is to retrofit low income and public housing to be net zero, like no carbon emissions, right? Mm-hmm. You say, okay, fine. What is it, what's in that? Well, the idea is that by training people to do the work on, on essentially government buildings, you jumpstart the market, sure. right? So at the end of that, you spend that money, right? And so you now have certain, um, you know, buildings been converted, but you have a whole cadre of people who know how to do it and are ready to make money at it and can offer it at a low price so that now that market expands and you have, more normal people like us uh, able to access, at least you get the capability to someone you can call up and maybe they go on Angie's list. You say, mm-hmm. I want a heat pump, right? And Angie's know. list has got, you know, people that know what they're doing. The infamous yellow pages. And yeah. you'll have a, a dozen vendors as opposed to one guy or person. Right, right, <laughs> one right, org. right. right. Yep. And, and so, I mean, those things are good, good things that should be, it's called the Zero Carbon Renovation Fund. And it touches on stuff you and I have touched on several times of like, how do you renovate all the uh, triple deckers in the gateway cities? Right. right. Uh, yep. Blah, blah, blah. So there's huge challenges there. But the point being that from the roadmap, client, the roadmap news side, there is this period where we're, we're go- what's going to happen is in July, the session, the, the, the House and Senate will come back into session. They will vote on all this stuff. Somehow they will be presented this reconciled version of the two bills and they'll try and bang, 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 vote on it. Not likely that there'll be a lot of time. What t- typically happens is that, you know, they, they, they do it and then 24 hours they voted. And although from my understanding, if you remember, so just rewinding two years ago, people may not remember, but the, the best climate bill that we have now, the one that's in place. Right was actually in, I guess it was 2019, I think. 2019, they, they kept the session alive. 
Right. So instead of ending in July, they said, we're going to go to the end of the year, right? And then all the climate stuff was dark for six months in this reconciliation committee. And then just after Christmas, it pops up. I think actually it was 20. So it was during 20, because then it was early in 21 that the revision came out. Right. And and, and it popped up. They passed it in like 20 minutes. Baker vetoes it in 21 minutes, goes back to the House. They mess around. They pass it again. And so it finally became law. No, actually, they reintroduced it in the new session. Right, because they had already ended their session. So when Baker revetoed it, they had to wait because they were out. Right. And so I get the point being that I think the House and the Senate are smart enough that this time they want to pass a bill in the summertime so that if it is vetoed by the governor, which it may well be, they can come back and pass it anyway before the end of the year. Right. So again, for the... Uh, for the people who are following this and thinking about it, you know, what we're going to see is this, this bill is going to pop out of the reconciliation committee. There's going to be some kind of votes on it. It's going to go to the governor. There's going to be a cycle there. And we want to get the governor to pass, you know, to either be overridden or sign it near term. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're looking at as the upcoming, the teaser, shall we say, of what's going to happen over the next uh, four to six weeks. Right. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I know akin to kind of a scorecard. <laughs> we'll try and at least keep track of it. I'm not sure we'll have the ball, the the lineup and the scorecard, who's on first and what's on second, but we'll try to make some sense of it as it goes through because, yeah, it's going to be almost like a tennis match. It's going to ping pong back and forth. <laughs> yeah. And then yeah. hopefully it'll come out the end in the right way. But we'll right. see. Stay tuned. Right. right. Stay tuned. I mean, that's the, uh, uh, I find it kind of interesting, right? As you, sort of learn what the who the players are and what they're thinking about it gives you reason to track things and there you go Mm -hmm. i think that the place if uh, dear listener if you're not familiar in, in in how to get the information i would say that there are two good places now in boston in in this area to get information probably i mean there's more of course but the two major places are um the boston globe Right, has a something called Into the Red, right. and they have um, Sabrina whole, Shankman uh, yeah, is whole like series a of whole series articles, of stuff, et cetera. Yep. And they're they're publishing stuff, real time analysis. And the other great place is WBUR Earthwile with Miriam Miriam Wasser, who puts out mm-hmm. these great explainers. So if you track them, I don't know if you're on Twitter or Facebook or whatever. I mean, you can sign up for like weekly emails and whatnot, and the stuff comes in, and you're at least able to sort of keep an eye on things what's going on without getting swamped so right right and then two other shortcuts chloe from a franklin matters twitter perspective follow franklin matters <laughs> i believe you've got a twitter yourself and then the climate action network has one that follows yeah. which at, at least mass climate you... and uh at ted mcintyre 100 right mm-hmm. which are but i mean you're absolutely right steve you are publishing stuff here on franklin matters right which is great that people can follow as well so right. it's uh it's yeah you just have to kind of silt, sift through as to climate versus town council versus schools but it is but, all germane as far as i think franklin matters no pun intended it, it, it's one of those things it's one of those things though is that that it's sort of like when you're shopping for a car and you you look on and you say oh you know here's this this uh, 19, I don't know, 22 Chevy something or other, right? All of a sudden you start seeing them everywhere. 
yeah. right? because you're conscious of it, right? Once you've heard the word and you're kind of conscious of it, all of a sudden these things pop up and mm -hmm. uh, it's easier and easier to follow. So. Yep. And you see a new electric bike and all of a sudden, ooh, that was the first one I saw. And then all of a sudden, the next three weeks, you see them all over the place. So let me just, that's it. Let me just say that one of the, this is my own personal thing. This reconciliation bill should have subsidies for electric bikes, at least the equivalent of the subsidies for electric cars. Vehicles. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, it should be, it should be across the board. You should be able to, because for someone who's looking at an electric bike, you can't just say, oh, they cost less than a, than a Tesla. So we can't, like the person who wants to buy the electric bike may not have the money to buy a Tesla. Mm -hmm. right? For them, it matters. Right. And, yeah. and I don't know, I keep seeing good. Oh, and Matt, Matt I'm going to say Madam Wu, Michelle Wu uh, is, is um, through the summer blocking off certain streets in Boston for pedestrians, yes. which I have to do a, do a dance. That's such a good thing, right? You yeah. see all this stuff in Paris and London where they, you know, they make the cities walkable. Mm -hmm. God bless her. She, I mean, that, that would be a, that's a really good thing. And of course, then that ties in with the, the e-bikes. And I, I had a, we did a podcast last November talking about pedestrianizing Storrow Drive. Yeah. Right? Because Storrow Drive runs parallel to Commonwealth Avenue. It runs parallel to the Mass Pike. It runs parallel with Memorial Drive. Sure. So, why isn't that turned back into a bike path, a place you can walk along, right? And people at one point, I think back in the archives, it was purely a greenway. It was supposed to, by deed, it was supposed to be just a greenway. But I mean, the first time you say it, people's eyes roll back in their heads. Oh, that's the craziest thing ever. But then it's, it's sort of, for my money, the same as saying that bus transit should be free. First time everybody hears that, they say, ah. You're crazy. But mm -hmm. all of a sudden, say, more, more people say, no, this is, it's a public good. It should be free, right? Store right. drive should be a pedestrian. Anyway, right. I'll stop there. No, that's fine. And I think we've <laughs> talked, and it's it's also a Franklin topic. Uh, currently, certainly the Strawberry Stroll, Main Street will be closed for a bit. Um, in September as well, I believe the uh, Cultural Festival have, although I think that's based on the town common, there may be another... There's at least the side street. Oh, the main street itself, because they're going to have the food trucks is going to be closed in that spot. Mm -hmm. um, so Franklin is doing bits of that. Um, the key piece, I think, assuming it gets out in time, is if you do spend time at the Strawberry Stroll, it's also going to be the MAPC booth for Franklin for All, which ties back into this to the extent that they're going to give you an opportunity to visualize downtown Franklin how to make it more walkable, how to make it transit friendly. And then within that, obviously, then you would still have to look at how to make it, you know, net zero, more green, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a great opportunity downtown. <laughs> While this, there's no traffic in the streets, you're going to have to worry about it. You can just sit there and look and say, oh, what would be Wouldn't that be like? nice? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it, it's, it's a, an incremental process of realizing, I think one of the quotes you had from that book was that, I mean, until some, until you can think it yourself and describe it, you can't right. convince anyone else of what yeah. they, you know, what, what they, what it ought to be. And so it's a good internal exercise to imagine what could be as opposed to what is right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, I think we've come around 
probably to the same place, <laughs> but we've made a little bit more sense, hopefully along the way, and hopefully we haven't lost too many folks along the way. <laughs> and assuming we haven't, stay tuned, we'll have more in this indeterminate length, making sense of climate. I thank you again, Ted, for sharing your knowledge and your passions, and I appreciate that. <laughs> and hopefully people will uh, will continue to listen. Oh, it's great to be here, Steve. I uh, I look forward to it the next time we get to chat. I do too. And we do this for listeners, of course, because Franklin matters. We are now producing this in collaboration with Franklin TV and Franklin Public Radio. This podcast is my public service effort for Franklin, but we can't do it alone. We can always use your help. How can you help? If you can use the information that you find here, please tell your friends and neighbors. If you don't like something here, please let me know. Through this feedback loop, we can continue to make improvements. And I thank you for listening. For additional information, please visit franklinmatters.org. If you have questions or comments, you can reach me directly at suresteve at gmail.com. The music for the intro and exit was provided by Michael Clark and the group East of Shirley. The piece is titled Ernesto Manana, copyright Michael Clark and Tintype Tunes in 2008 and used with their permission. I hope you enjoy. And by the way, you can also subscribe and listen to Franklin Matters Radio on your favorite podcast app. Search in podcasts for Franklin Matters.